Welcome to the closing global private banking debate for the Euromoney Global Private Banking and Wealth Management virtual event 2020. There's a lot of ground to cover in this session. In a normal year, we would discuss technology, for example, location of wealth, ESG, stability issues of a geography, maybe the attractiveness of a geography or market or an asset class, pretty slide rule stuff, but this is no normal year. COVID has forced the industry to adapt to the demands of a pandemic that forces us to work from home, to attend virtual only events and webinars. We've all faced mortality in our own ways. How has that affected how the industry operates and is governed in different markets? And how private banking customers expect service to be delivered and what products they demand? I'm the moderator for today's debate. My name is Elliot Wilson and I am Euromoney's Global Private Banking and Wealth Management Editor. The panelists today are Emma Crystal, Head of International Wealth Management, Northern and Western Europe, and Head of Sustainable Client Solutions at Credit Suisse. Augusto Miranda, Global Head of Private Bank at Bradesco. Robert Gardner, Director of Investments at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Mei-Yu Fang, Deputy General Manager at China Construction Bank. And Veronica Jukova, Managing Director of Sberbank Private Banking. First, let's start with the first topic, which is relates to the first sentence I uttered, which is COVID. One could argue that the start of the year was not too bad for the industry, but as it came to grips with the effects of the pandemic, things have probably changed. How has it been since the start of the year and perhaps since the end of the first quarter? How did the industry, in your opinion, react to the pandemic and what have been the main impacts so far on you? Perhaps we could kick off with Emma. Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, very happy to be on this panel today. Look, I I think, you know, we could talk for a long time about the impact of COVID. I I would say it feels like a long time ago now, you know, the beginning of the year. We've been through a lot. I think you mentioned, you know, first of all, let's say the human impact, how you can see how something non-financial then very quickly moves to becoming a financial topic for people. So I think initially sort of the human aspect of it was the major, I would say, the major impact on our business. And then that very quickly moved into being, you know, financial aspects. What are clients doing? What are we seeing? And I can say that, you know, the activity level has been great with clients. You know, I think the whole working from home actually from my perspective has worked very well for us and for clients. I think, however, you know, if you look further forward into the future, I think the part that has suffered is, you know, you look at prospecting, right? Where clients that you don't know yet. And so your existing clients, you know, are very understanding. You can almost communicate better and more frequently virtually, but it's sort of the whole business building and prospecting. And I think that's where we'll need to see um, in the years in the years to come how that's going to play out. Yeah, perhaps um, Augusto, you're, you've just joined us from Latin America, from, uh, is it Sao Paulo or Rio? Which one are you in? Yeah, so Elliot, thank you and uh, thank you uh, everyone. I think, uh, well, we are, I'm very happy to participate. So Emma, I think, put in a very good way, right? And for us, it's very similar in terms of what we are seeing uh, since uh, COVID impacted us. In Brazil, it was basically in February or March, but it looks like a very time, a very long ago. So in terms of client activity, uh, with the portfolios, with bankers, advisors, investors, and on the team, we are seeing actually a very good increase in terms of communication communication because Brazil is a huge country in terms of uh, territory also uh, video conferences and some kind of past 
ways of doing business changed. But in terms of prospecting new clients, this has been a challenge. So uh, I think when we see um, our base of clients, uh, most of them are very comfortable in terms of uh, discussing their portfolios, but we see, especially in more specific themes, as for example, philanthropy or wealth planning and more complex when you need, let's say, some specialists together with uh, the, the, the private banker, it sometimes can be a little bit difficult. But I think we are passing through and um, maybe we have um, good news uh, very quick. Okay, great. And uh, perhaps we could turn to Robert. You've got a, you're sit, well, you're sitting in Castle Coombe today, but you're sitting like at the epicentre of it all, as it were, St. James's Place, I would imagine. Yeah, no, no. Well, Elliot, thanks for inviting me. A bit like Emma, I suppose we see COVID in sort of various phases. Just for context, we have about 750,000 clients in the UK, spread across the UK. And I think phase one, so think of that as March, was all about peace of mind and reassurance. No one wants to talk about financial planning. They just, it's just reassuring your clients who are with you today. It's okay. Markets do fall. I know it was very scary and it's the fastest drop in markets. So that peace of mind, reassurance and reminding people of what their financial goals are and investing for the long term and avoiding that long term mistake of switching out of, let's say, equities into cash. So that was phase one. I think the second thing is we had to move very quickly as a business. You know, we've got 4,200 financial planners. So Zoom-based, Microsoft Teams-based, and short, sharp 20-minute conversations with those clients rather than the annual one-and-a-half-hour face-to-face meeting. So that was kind of phase one. Phase two is kind of, okay, well, now let's start to, re- as the markets have recovered and people kept investing, you know, pound cost averaging, let's start thinking about the future. And actually, the, the, the fantastic thing is we've been able to do client webinars with 1,000, 2,000 people joining in, whereas normally you'd be like stuck in a location, right? You might only get 100, 200 clients. All of a sudden, you can do client events and get thousands of clients with an interesting speaker, an interesting topic. But I'd echo what Emma said is that, I think our focus has really been about client retention, reminding them to stay invested for the long term. Uh, Not surprisingly, COVID-19 has had an impact on both our recruitment of additional financial advisors, which is a key engine of growth for our business, and also new client acquisition. And I suppose looking a little bit to the future is how can we develop our referral program? Because at the end of the day, our business is about trusted face-to-face advice. And the best form of winning new clients is through referrals. Okay, and uh, Veronica, you Fang as well. We've got two very different countries. Some of uh, you know, China's dealt quite early with the impact of COVID. You know, it emerged there, but it's and Russia is, um, as as Veronica was saying earlier, was um, Russia's going through its own. Uh, you know, it's 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 almost boosted its internal economy. For you yourself, Veronica, how have how have your clients? How have you adapted to the the, the yeah. impact of COVID for your clients? Yes. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, great to be here with you, uh, with you on this panel. Um, so we've seen, you know, sometimes similar stages uh, like uh, other speakers just described. And uh, I just want to mention that, you know, at the early stage, we saw clients being very emotional, both in terms of, uh, you know, managing the investments. Some of them were really like, you know, seeing the crash of the market and uh, being very emotional at what's happening, especially, you know, it was connected to the personal, uh, you know, relations to, 
to the news we all have with the COVID-19. Uh, we've seen uh, a huge spike, five times more philanthropic donations uh, from our clients. They supported the, the, the medical, they supported uh, vaccine creation, they supported all the, um, you know, communities in need. So that's uh, also, you know, we observe this as a trend. Yes, we've seen uh, a huge spike in activity. We've seen uh, triple numbers in terms of uh, number of deals, double the volumes uh, compared to the previous months. So it's been a great uh, period, uh, so to speak, to take advantage of the volatility for our clients. Um, and yes, we've seen also like a, a huge digital engagement. We we didn't have that many, you know, client events online. Um, but since March, we did a couple of them, not a couple, quite a few of them. And we've seen like a great participation in different topics. What we've observed, which is quite uh, different from what other speakers have mentioned, we're actually seeing enormous growth of our client base. So somehow, you know, I think it relates to the activity and engagement we run through this, uh, the most difficult months. But uh, we are now experiencing, you know, the compared to the last year, similar months, uh, double, triple growth in terms of new clients and uh, growing AUMs um, substantially. We do uh, see also the demand from the clients in terms of the expertise because, you know, the markets behave now somehow regular right and a lot of clients come over to us for for an advice uh, what is happening do i need to be invested uh, do i need to rebalance what do i do and um, it's a great opportunity for us actually to share expertise and um, you know engage with clients even more and um, we definitely see you know we started this uh, you know a year and a year and a half back, we have invested heavily in creation of uh, the digital platforms, both for, for investment advisory services and also communication platform with our clients. And we see now that it was a great timing because some of that is already delivered, some we are close to deliver to like the digital experience to our clients and um, it's come handy in terms of time. Thank you, Veronica. And huge philanthropic effort from your clients, more digital engagement, Absolutely, on the, um, the the client engagement side. For you, Fang, China Construction Bank, I think we'd all be interested to know your clients, you've been through best and the worst of the pandemic. If you've seen any change in China in terms of how your clients in the country demand services and what kind of services they require due to the pandemic? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, great to be here. I think uh, there are not too many changes for the clients. Uh, also, yeah from the need and the behavior. And I think uh, three years ago, and uh, we put lots of uh, investment into the IT technology, not only into the platform, but also the communication channels from the mobile uh, internet. And also that keep well communication between the bank and the, 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 the clients. So, Though the epidemic and, and uh, influence the communication and the uh, face-to-face way, but uh, but uh, from my view and from uh, also from the growth rates of the clients' uh, assets, uh, not uh, was not affected uh, affected by the epidemic. And also, I think uh, just like uh, some other countries and the clients. Uh, and maybe worry, worried about uh, changes of the market uh, and the uh, economy. And uh, we ask uh, 
uh, our expertise to communicate with the clients online and uh, introduce and uh, explain the, the, the changes and to uh, rebalance the asset allocation for the clients. So I think it's not uh, too high uh, impact on our business. And we get uh, the almost the same growth rate and uh, compared with last year. Okay, thanks. Um, moving on to the second point that we, we, just, we I think we're going to discuss. Either, maybe I'd be curious to know, global transparency is a powerful force for change in the industry. There is naturally going to be a higher level of focus on transparency in some markets than other, other, other markets. How do you deal with that? Is the demand for transparency more complex and higher than ever? That is a very broad question I completely understand. But when it's presented to you, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? I'd open this up to anybody. Perhaps Robert could start off with that one. From my perspective, it, it's always from a client's perspective. And I think, you know, at the heart of it is transparency builds trust in the overall cycle of money from, you know, from financial advice to asset management, right the way through to how individual stocks and shares are being traded. Certainly in the UK, our regulators, the direction of travel across wealth management, across pensions, across investments has been around greater transparency. I think that just to caveat, not to caveat it, but to put something, I think we also need to, as an industry, and especially in wealth management, communicate the value of advice because the big question is the unbundling uh, of costs, which I think is the right thing to do. People need to understand what they're paying for. But at at the same time, you know, we need to make sure that when people are paying for stuff, people understand the value they're getting for it. Following Rob, I think I can. Actually, I missed one question. I'm based in Sao Paulo, so just correcting myself here. And following what Rob just mentioned, I think uh, for for our, trans- our perspective here is very similar, right? So I think it's an excellent transparency, to an excellent way uh, in a customer uh, perspective to to avoid conflicts of interest and uh, focus on client relationship, offering the, offering the best uh, service. So, uh, and in Brazil, with the arrival of the open banking, more and more products become uh, and will become commodities. Service will make the difference uh, when addressing clients' needs with the conversation. So I think it's a one-way movement that we are facing globally. Yeah, I would add to that, um, you know, Credit Suisse, um, you know, myself being based in Europe, I think in Europe, obviously, we've been at the forefront of that with MIFID and so on. And I mean, I clearly see that as just further opportunity, exactly to Rob's point, to have a trustful relationship with clients. So I think that's a movement that we embrace and, you know, obviously fully set up, you know, to make sure that we comply with everything we need to. But I think from you know, that's already been, I would say, the trend for quite a few years now. And quite, you know, with our clients, that's that's uh, what they expect from us, transparency, and uh, that's what we give them. Can I build on that? Um, you know, even though we are um, not uh, part of the MIFID regulation, etc., but um, our local regulator is, like, really going that way and exploring a lot of uh, international practices and bringing it uh, to, to the Russian market. So with the delay of a couple of years, we're getting the same, uh, you know, expectations just wrapped in the local regulation. But on the other point, I'm, I'm seeing even a great um, opportunity in transparency that relates to the changes that... You know, it's now possible to share clients, um, you know, 
assets in other banks via API through different services. And now it is possible to have in one place assets from different banks. And the client sees, you know, like first has an, a full transparency of the total wealth across different, uh, you know, institutions. And also it uh, helps uh, the client to get the second opinion. Like, you know, with doctors, sometimes we want to have a second opinion, right? And uh, it was very difficult before that in the, in the banking, in the wealth management industry, because, you know, it was fairly closed environment. Now with the opportunity to share your, you know, your balances, your current asset allocation in one bank with the advisor in another bank, actually it creates more opportunities for clients to, to get the second opinion. And I think this is a great opportunity for all of us. You, Fang, I'd be curious to know your point there, because I know China is very, you know, the payments companies in China are very, very advanced, very transparent in what they do. Pricing, for example, is the banking system also moving, is the private banking industry also moving that way in the same way that it is in Russia and Europe? For the private banking client, they are, uh, pay more attention uh, on, uh, private, uh, on their privacy protection. Um, but as the colleague of uh, Russia and Private Bank mentioned, I think if they need more, and uh, at, I think, uh, uh, well, services, and uh, such as we, we have maybe uh, doctor services for the clients. So we ask the permission of the clients, and uh, with the permission, we share the client's messages with the value-added providers. And also, we have some lawyer and uh, also tax accountants and uh, have the client to set up the family trust. So we must ask the permission of the client to share such information. But uh, at the other hand, I, I think for the private banking clients, uh, we can use digital technology to control the sharing information between the different uh, institutions and also to use this data to detect some risk uh, exposures and also uh, to, to find some, some invasion and some fraud to the client. So I think uh, that's, that's the fact of uh, China. Yeah. Okay, so compliance costs are rising around the world, local compliance costs, international ones, intra-regional ones. How do you keep a cost on this? How do you keep a, a, a control on this, a handle on this? I was speaking to a friend last night, he talked to me about the risk, the, co- the increasing cost of making sure that everybody is, uh, the actions of each individual is kept under control. Is the greatest source of new regulation the EU? or the US or elsewhere? I'd like to open this up to everyone. Perhaps to Rob first. Yeah, look, first and foremost, again, being based in the UK, we we look to the FCA, which is our kind of primary uh, regulator. Obviously, UK is still in Europe at the moment. Look, the big cost for, for us is actually what's called the FSCS levy. So that's the levy applied to all financial advisors, of which are about 28,000 in the UK, uh, to pay for when there's bad financial outcomes. So I suppose that's the biggest cost. I mean, we, we spend about £7,000 per advisor, so it's a big old cost. I think actually it relates a little bit to where we were going with data and technology is that if we if we try to comply with regulation the way we always have done, which is harm more people and you know build more spreadsheets and all the rest, that's not going to work. I think we need to have a much more data and technology-led approach to compliance that, that creates smart dashboards which start to flag to our risk teams where there are issues and then we can focus in on that because otherwise 
the cost of compliance can spiral out. But at the same time, I have a lot of sympathy. You know, the FCA is very, very focused on protecting consumer outcomes. And I think we're all in the business of protecting the outcomes of our clients. So, so it is a balance. Yeah, and I would add, um, I would add, Elliot, that you know, I think technology does play a part in it, and I also think you know the organisation obviously has to be set up to be as efficient as possible. So, for example, at Credit Suisse, you know, we just announced after the Q2 results that, for example, we're merging the compliance organisation with the risk organisation because there are a lot of synergies there that we have as well. Um, and also on on the business side in wealth management, we recently merged. For example, we went from seven regions to five regions merging Northern Europe and Southern Europe, because obviously, to your earlier point, MIFID, for example, obviously is a regulation that encompasses all of Europe. And I think being efficient in how we tackle those things organizationally is also very important. Okay. And cybersecurity as well, if I can push this uh, this point up to the top of the uh, debate. It's, um, it's something we talk about a lot. It's a growing concern across the industry. What steps within the industry are you taking to a concern you're not part of a digital hack or to ensure that your clients when they're looking at what's going on and, and wanting to ensure that they are not dealing with um, problems. Cybersecurity, um, what kind of issue is this for you? Can I go to Veronica perhaps for that? Cybersecurity is very big for us. Um, you know, with as Bank has been, uh, you know, for years now investing in this topic and we have a huge, uh, you know, number of resources allocated to, you know, to build the fences around client data and, you know, the way we we manage data, we keep data, we transmit data. And um, even, uh, you know, on the market, we're known as a leader in this topic. From the uh, kind of internal point of view, it's actually creates a lot of uh, work for us because, you know, the, the standard for cybersecurity, they kind of... Uh, uh, go higher and higher, like not every year, but every quarter, I, I, I would say. And it will impose, uh, you know, certain um, rules uh, and processes on us, people who develop uh, like new new products, for example, because the demand for, for that is actually, you know, how to make sure it's, uh, you know, secure. It's very, very, very burning um, subject. Uh, luckily, we didn't have any issues and incidents uh, with our clients, but we know that on the market, uh, you know, there's growing number of cases and therefore we are trying to do everything to protect ourselves. In terms of the kind of compliance and regulatory costs, uh, I think we're the lucky ones uh, still because, you know, in terms of the cost to income ratios, we are in about 30 to 40 percent and uh, any increase to regulation doesn't really kill us yet. We have the room for that improvement. But I hear what is happening on all the developed markets and uh, I know we're going to be there soon too. In terms of the number of uh, efforts we need to make uh, in order to comply with all the regulations, Rob and Emma, I wonder from the from the point of view of cybersecurity, it always comes up in these debates, and we always talk about them in uh, sort of rather bland terms. Do you do you think the cybersecurity is something that can never really be properly tackled? So it, it, we have this expression which is uh, it's like painting the fourth bridge, which is a very famous bridge, the Firth of Forth in, uh, up in Scotland. And by the time you finish painting it, you have to start again. Our head offices are based up just down the road from Cheltenham, which is where GCHQ, which is the, the Britain's kind of cybersecurity centre. Uh, so it never stops. I think for me, adding to what Veronica says, the challenge is at the end of the day, the weak point is your people and your teams. And so it's a culture thing. Our CTO is a very sneaky guy. They often put little hacks in. So like even when I logged into the Wi-Fi at the hotel I'm staying in to make sure I don't do something 
you know, silly, right? You know, you log into the Wi-Fi on the train or in the hotel and you can create weak points. So there's the bit that your technology team are probably doing to protect the business, bearing in mind that the outside world are always getting better. But actually what you really need to do is train and develop your staff constantly to be alert of the risks and to be smart about it. So for, for me, I think there's more and more focus on organizational culture around cyber security as well as the ongoing technology investment. Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, you know, cybersecurity is and remains a big topic, right? It is a big area of concern for our clients. And, you know, again, it's a little bit in the same, you know, going to the same topic on the compliance costs. You know, it is in this industry, you know, you do need a certain amount of scale to have the right resources that you need, obviously, to do what you need to do, right? In cybersecurity, you obviously need to have expertise. You need to do the best you can. It doesn't mean you're safe because, you know, everyone everyone is at risk always. But I think it's one of those important areas where you know we can never let our guard down because you know the fraudsters are getting more and more advanced every day and you know we need to keep up to protect our clients and Elliot adding here with uh, with Veronica Brazil it's uh, also an emerging market right so we have a lot of fraud attempt I think just to add here uh, we, we also have a huge concern uh, about cybersecurity here in Bradesco and our internet banking mobile banking uh, have extremely high levels of security also and we are constantly increasing new uh, features so uh, when you see a, a country like a 200 million uh, people uh, using all these kind of uh, internet and, and all these facilities. Obviously, it's a huge and important point for us. So basically, our systems are stored in our own data center and we are constantly investing because this is a, a main point for us, uh, specific for uh, this uh, huge country in terms of uh, digitalization that people are using and the numbers are increasing. So just to add here, my part and augusto on that is it a cyber security issue for your clients or is it like a security and a cyber security issue because if data is available to people about people you know maybe those people don't want uh, the wrong people to know where they are in latin america that must be a pretty big consideration maybe in other countries too Yes, definitely. So we have a lot of security measures and uh, some uh, some specific uh, worries in terms of how to deal. So everything, for example, that happens in private banking just stays in private banking in terms of visibility, in terms mm-hmm. of access. Client has two or three layers in terms of uh, security to access uh, all kind of uh, information. So obviously, uh, you, you were right. Brazil, it's an emerging market and you have uh, some concentration in terms of wealth so for us it's a main point uh, every day in terms of uh, creating looking new technology specific what uh, europe has and other developed country has uh, asian countries so we are always increasing and investing in this part of the business okay um, and just an addition one on that do you think that security is going to become an increasing issue because of people wanting more, you know, inequality becoming more prevalent in many societies. Um, you know, the, the security of very, people in various countries was an issue in Italy, I think, in the 1970s and the 1980s, in Latin America now as well. Is that going to become more of a, of a factor for people going forward in the future if wealth becomes more unequal? I'm just curious about that. I've been wondering about that for a while. 
No, it's inter interesting people. I don't know if I have the the, the, the right answer, but I, I, I'm going to mention my opinion here. What I see is that the, a little bit of the concerns and uh, in terms of uh, generations, uh, it's very different, right? So we have the the older generation that are much more worried in terms of knowing what they have and and how to and how to share these kind of things. And when you see when you talk about the open banking and sharing information, probably for the next generation, for the younger people, this is less a concern. So. I think that the market is changing. Obviously, that when you talk about security, the physical security, it's completely different, right? In a country that has some disparity. But when you see, uh, and when we see clients here, we, we realize that this is changing, right? In terms of generations and giving more more information to our competitors. So I think that the question, yes, it's changing. And basically, the, the new generations have uh, a different approach on that. Anybody else uh, just jump in on that? I, I, I'm happy to move on to the next one. I'm just curious to know whether it's – that wasn't necessarily a, a question directed at Augusta in Latin America. That was an open question. I was curious to know if security was more of an issue in many markets now that perhaps it wasn't or it might be going forward. Is that something clients are worried about? But if they're not, then that's fine. Do private banks, do wealth management institutions talk with women, to women, well enough? I've heard – People say that, yes, they do. I've heard many people say, no, they don't. Um, is there good enough communication within private banking to a demographic that is increasingly important, not only in terms of creating wealth, inheriting wealth, but also creating wealth? Perhaps I could open that up as a man. I'd like to, and I don't want to mansplain this. I'd like to, let me, let me open that up to, uh, to any of the women on this panel who are outnumbered, I'm afraid. <laughs> Perhaps to Emma first. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to start. Well, look, first of all, you could always do better. But I mean, I do I do definitely feel that there is a focus on this topic. And I, and I think it is more complex than just talking about women. I mean, first of all, there is the whole, let's say, family member topic, which is wives, for example, other family members can also be children, daughters. You, then you get into the whole next gen discussion. And then it's also, you know, happily the new sort of um, and growing breed of female entrepreneurs, right, which is a different type of group of uh, group of people who we need to cover. So, yes, I think there's a lot of work going on uh, on that, in fact. But I think, you know, more to come on that. I mean, for example, one of the things that we organize now for the last few years is Women's Financial Forum, you know, which the kind these kind of events where you have, you know, very senior women attending, you know, pe women in business, great speakers, where you really have an opportunity then as women as well to talk about business and talk about, you know, what we need to help each other to succeed. So, I definitely feel the focus is on this topic but for sure we can always do more yeah i can continue too actually i agree with emma that um we, we shouldn't treat women as just you know some disadvantage you know like a group which we need to take special attention to i, I think we, the, the issue is broader it's exactly like the family and how do you engage family uh first of all and then uh, the beneficiary of the family could be either woman or man and then it's a vice versa like the engagement is very important uh, and it relates to the parents it relates to children we are also innovating in different ways is how to engage all the different groups that relates to the wealth. And um, since we're relatively young wealth in the country, so most of our clients initially were uh, uh, like, you know, male, uh, but we see a share of uh, women entrepreneurs and women, uh, you know, holding the wealth is increasing rapidly. Still, it's not like, you know, close to half, uh, but the rate of growth is very, very good. We also try to experiment with the different clubs. We have a close club for women, which, you know, like meets every 
approximately every quarter. And we talk from both the education, the philanthropy to the business and uh, like a management and the culture. And by that, we're engaging also the woman, which you know, really uh, value that uh, that discussion and uh, value the community. But we also noticed that, you know, maybe at the early stage of thinking, uh, you know, when on the market we saw experiments that, you know, like let's produce some product which is specially for women. But most times women don't want a special product. They want a different way of communication rather than, uh, you know, like a different wrapping to the same product. So by taking these uh, takeaways, we're actually, you know, shaping the communication and engagement with the woman a slightly different way. And uh, But I agree with Emma, we can always do more. Uh, maybe with, with Rob and uh, Augusto as well and Yufang, Veronica says women want not a different product, but a different form of communication. Do you take that in mind before you start out on a conversation with a, a female client who's new, maybe, or you don't really, you don't know that well? What do you stop and think about before you open your mouth? Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go in. So I'm, I'm really pleased Veronica said that because actually it's something that Augusto said, which is back to the transparency piece, which is its service. So a proposition is a product and an experience. You know, when we fly Singapore Airlines, it's a plane, but we experience the service of Singapore Airlines. So everything we do has both a product set and an experience. And so therefore, where we're doing the work is exactly as Veronica says, our product set is exactly the same. The way it is presented, the language that's used, the financial advisors uh, that we put in, in front of different clients really matters. So actually, one of the things that we're really trying to work on is how do we change the future shape of our advisor, and I don't just mean in terms of men and women, but also in terms of, uh, you know, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, age. I mean, one of the challenges we have in the UK is that the median age of a financial advisor is about 59 and is typically white and is typically male. So all of these things. So we've been working with a group in the UK called the Wisdom Council, and yes, she can. But a lot of it is actually about the words, the language, the way information is presented, who it's presented from. I was pleased to hear what Veronica said, because that's very much aligned with what we're seeing and, and how we're trying to evolve our proposition. I completely agree uh, with Emma and Veronica and Rob. And Elliot, when you see, uh, for example, June 2020, right, this year, Brodisco was uh, nominated one of the top uh, 10 best environments for women to work in Brazil on uh, the great places to work. So as my colleagues mentioned, we always have more to do. In private banking, for example, we pay close attention to ensure that uh, we are going in, in the same in the same direction. So, for example, nowadays we have 48% of women RMs in our team, and I'm very pleased to to say that looking uh, for the leadership roles in uh, strategic areas such, for example, our CIO and COO are women also. So we host nationally. It's a huge event that happens. Uh, twice a year, and it's called Bradesco Women. That basically, this has the mission to, to appraise female entrepreneurs, uh, their accomplishments in the market, and share their goods initiative. This kind of event is not just for private bank. It's a it's an institutional event. But um, very pleased to to listen, and uh, we are always looking for a specific way of serving them. And uh, again, a, a much more to do always. Okay. And, and do you think, I'm just curious from Emma's and Veronica's point of view, do you think that for women to be served, they need to be served by a woman? Like a young person, one assumes a generation X or a millennial or a Gen Z, 
probably need someone younger to talk to them. I don't know. Is that true? I, I was just, it was funny you asked that question because I was just about to make that comment that sort of on the back of what Veronica and Rob said, I think sometimes people oversimplify. You think, you know, a woman wants to be covered by a woman, a man wants to be covered by a man. No, I mean, that's not, it's much more complicated than that. You know, there are lots of women who like motorsports and, you know, there are lots of men who like, you know, ballet dancing. And I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's, it's important to actually have the right mix. And I think what is important is that we are open-minded as an organization, you know, thinking about what is the right thing, any service-minded organization thinking, what is the right thing for the client? What does this particular client need, man, woman, you know, younger, older, et cetera, and try and do that match. And I think the, the understanding that that thought process needs to happen is now embedded in the culture. I think, you know, perhaps looking back five, 10 years ago, perhaps not so much, but that definitely is now, those questions are being asked and that thought process is happening. Okay. That's great. And, and just on the younger, the issue, do you, that may be not true, but what about the young, we had a, a, a panel yesterday that I moderated on Gen Zers, who are the oldest of them are 23. And somebody in the pre-panel said, they're not listening to private bankers, they're not listening to their parents or grandparents, they only listen to each other. I'm curious to know, for the, for the very youngest of your clients now coming through who you need to talk to, how do you connect with them i think that's a that's going to be an absolutely fascinating thing but if you're as, as rob said the average age of the relationship manager in the uk is 59 white and male that's not always a great start so sit down have a pew and let me give you my wisdom is not going to work with gen Zers. so how do you serve a group of people who may look at you and think i don't want to listen to this person I think it it depends. I mean, you know, again, I think you have to look case by case, right? So, of course, I mean, the population of bankers has to be more diverse. That's obviously one thing, you know, younger, you know, female, male, etc. And that I think is already happening. But again, I think it's about being open-minded. I think it's about really having that thought process. What, What is this client, you know, what does this client need, you know? and then making sure the match is made. And of course, I mean, as you know, I'm sure you discussed in the panel yesterday, of course, you know, there is a massive generational shift going on from a wealth perspective, a wealth transfer. And clearly also technology plays a part in that role, right? There are different types of technology behavior in younger generations and older generations. And that also plays a part in how we are communicating and speaking with our clients. Okay. Um, Just jumping Jumping sideways into a more specific kind of investment allocation kind of question. Where are your clients, you know, for example, private equity versus bankable asset, keeping assets in cash, risk on, risk off. Uh, Your clients, both pre-COVID and during COVID, where do they stand on asking you, perhaps more, that they want to invest in certain products or they want to have more of their their assets held in certain uh, investable forms? Has there been a shift so far this year? Maybe I could come to you, Fang, with that first. From my opinion, uh, in the long run, population aging and uh, leverage policy will drive down int- will drive down drive down interest rates and the stability of RMB exchange rates and the solid financial uh, financial policy will set up a reasonable space for decreasing the interest rate and the considering of the driving force of domestic changes in wealth creation. Uh, the decreasing return of traditional industries such as real estate and also the world enters into a low interest environment. And all of these factors, I think, promote an increase on domestic financial assets. And high quality financial assets will become widely favored by investors. 
we believe asset allocation will become an important way to create more wealth and uh, achieve wealth goals. With the increase of global economic uncertainty, the overall risk of preference of the clients, I think they will, they will decline. And we think assets with double income uh, will get more attention. The allocation of the high-risk assets will be more careful. And in specific equity assets, whether in traditional industries or emerging industries, the underlying assets with, I think, with uh, strong performance and the market advantages and the big cushion will attract more, uh, more attention by the investors. Namely, the remaining is the king and uh, the winner is the king. I, I think following this logic, we think banks' assets will be the main peak and the private equity assets play a role in the allocation. That's my, my opinion. Thank you. Okay. Veronica, you're in a market which always demands significant returns. So what are your clients doing? At the, are they saying, no, I want to keep more of my liquid assets in cash, or are they looking for higher returns? What are they doing? Where is the risk balance? Thanks for the question. First, I want to build a little bit on what uh, May said. With the uh, close to zero rates environment, and also like, you know, what we're seeing is that uh, there is an increased correlation among the traditional asset classes, especially during this stress, uh, you know, kind of uh, time. So obviously, you know, clients are looking for a different type of assets in terms of, uh, you know, like bringing additional value to their portfolios and uh, obviously looking for an extra premium, right, uh, compared to the traditional asset classes as well. So we do uh, see increase in um, requests in terms of the all, all type of alternatives, especially you know, like family offices are more and more diversifying into the non-traditional asset classes. This is uh, like a trend number one. Second, um, as you mentioned, uh, true that, you know, expectations on the market in terms of uh, performance of the uh, investments is quite high. That's due to the historical, uh, you know, like kind of due to history we had in our country. And uh, we have noticed as well that this high volatility period starting from March to May, we've seen an increase. Uh, like a huge increase in the risk on uh, appetite from our clients. And we've seen that, you know, during this three months from March to May, um, you know, 70% uh, of all the deals actually happened in uh, equity market. And that was uh, like a very client, uh, you know, conscious decision in terms of I'll take the opportunity. But yes, uh, summarizing to that, uh, you know, given the interest rates on deposits and the current accounts, the more and more clients switch to a more kind of uh, risky investments, including the alternatives. I was just going to add to that. I mean, I think Veronica put it very well. And I mean, you know, we have a lot of exactly that, the low interest rate environment leading to this search for yield. And um, indeed, also, you know, the rise of the private markets, right? The alternatives, the private debt, private equity, uh, whether direct or through funds, you know, big interest in that. And I also think, you know, the whole sustainability 
topic actually coming up again, you know, in terms of interest. Also, I think on the back of COVID, you know, thinking about what is, how is my portfolio set up? What is the impact I can have? And it's interesting because that discussion is not now sort of a more values-based discussion. It's also a monetary discussion in terms of returns, right? How can I ensure that my portfolio is well positioned for the medium and the long term? So, of course, the added benefit that you doing something positive and good impact, but it's also the financial concern, you know, how can I position my portfolio sustainably for the future? Yeah, and Augusto, I think, as you know, you're again, you're in one of those markets where people expect higher returns. Are you seeing people put cash aside maybe to go into distressed assets as they become available? Yes, I think the story is very is very similar here as uh, what Veronica just mentioned. And we, we have to remember that Brazil has an environment. If you go, for example, to 2017, or three or four year, uh, three or four years ago, we had the interest rate around eight ten percent. So imagine, right, a time deposit will be fine for you, but now with a low, actually it's the lowest interest rates in the history of the country. Uh, clients are looking for global diversification, private equity, alternatives, and we are uh, basically working on that. This is mainly our focus when we see that especially international diversification in Brazil is gaining more space every day. So very similar story in terms of uh, expecting higher returns and different uh, investments in terms of alternatives and, and all kind of that. Okay, and Emma brought up the point there of ESG, which is which we were going to cover next anyway, and it's uh, it's an interesting one. And it, again, in the panel yesterday, I haven't been on sitting on every panel in this conference, but uh, it came up with Gen Zers, for example, wanting environmental returns and financial returns from their products, which isn't always the case. So Gen Zers are a complex bundle of contradictions. People increasingly demand that you know say, well, why can't I have returns, financial as well as environmental, in the same package? So, Elliot, I, I was just going to say, I, for me, this is pretty fundamental to, to client outcomes. So, before I worked in wealth management, I worked in pension funds. And I think that the, the point I would make is the average child born today, certainly in most developed countries, is 100. With this idea of a 100-year life is, is a very clear thing. My, my life expectancy, according to the Office of National Statistics, is 86. I have a one in four chance of living to 100. The reason I mention that is that climate change will play out in the next 30 years. And in fact, you know, 1990 to me doesn't feel that long ago. So we're as close to 2050 as we are to 1990. And what's the point in having a million dollars, a million Swiss francs, a million pounds, 10 million renminbi, if the planet of the temperature has gone up by three, four degrees C. We've wiped out 30 to 40% of global fauna. Sea levels have risen a few meters. Amsterdam is underwater. Parts of London are underwater. St. Petersburg is flooded. Uh, I can go on. And so for a lot of our clients, it's important not just to achieve personal financial well-being, but it also needs to be in a world worth living in. And the work we do with our clients is help them plan, grow, and protect their wealth over decades, not quarters or years. And so actually, I don't see it as a, you know, a Gen Z or anything else. Pretty much all of our clients want to know that their money is being used uh, as a force for good. You know, increasingly, there's a lot of, you know, academic research to support the, the case for embedding ESG. So we've, we've embedded responsible investing across everything we do. It's not something we do and don't do. It's just something we do across everything, 115 billion pounds that we invest. 
And we also report these things to our clients. So our clients know the carbon footprint of all of their investments and how that relates to standard benchmarks. And, and actually, you create that positive feedback loop. And actually, it's related to the engagement point we had earlier, which is how do you engage your clients on important topics, not just about their own personal prosperity, but the prosperity of the planet? And I would add maybe two things to that. I mean, I think, again, it's it's a very big and complex area. I mean, you know, also depending on the region, you know, we are a global bank at Credit Suisse, a global wealth manager. And of course, certain regions, of course, is more focused on, you know, sustainable investing, sustainable assets. But of course, certain other areas, you know, where you have a big history of oil and gas, metals and mining, it's about sustainable financing, which is also very important, you know, how we're going to do that going forward. And I think the other point I would add is, I think what clients, you know, what we hear more and more is, you know, I think it's going to be important to be an institution, obviously, that takes sustainability seriously. And I think at Credit Suisse, you know, we made some announcements as well very recently that we've actually have a dedicated um, executive board member now in charge of sustainability. I mean, and that shows you really the focus that we have on this topic. And, um, and I think that's going to be important and it's important for our clients going forward. Can I um, add something? You know, we also see that there is an ongoing need for, you know, making the planet uh, better, right? And our clients, those who have wealth, they actually try to do different uh, activities, uh, starting from the responsible investments to philanthropy, to endowment funds, to supporting different areas. And uh, it's it's definitely a huge trend. And uh, we provide the same. We, we, we have the solutions to calculate the footprint, to have the ESG score on your investments. We have thematic strategies like... Uh, uh, gender equality, like circular economy, uh, like food tech, etc. But at the same time, I think, you know, um, we still have a big room for improvement, especially with our clients. Uh, maybe you have followed the news. There was a huge oil spill in Arctic uh, made by Norilsk Nickel earlier this year. And um, it was very curious. I, I was very curious and I tried to see, you know, what happened next, uh, especially with our clients. Because, you know, given this news, you would expect the clients would reduce the exposure to this asset because it's very, uh, you know, environmentally unfriendly. But on the contrary, we saw like a huge, uh, you know, um, clients picked up the, the, the asset when it dropped uh, because they saw that the, the company is in good shape. You know, it can produce the profit. So there was an increased demand for buying Norris Nickel, even though like, you know, from ecological point of view, it's, uh, it's a disaster. So I think we still have a, a, a huge room uh, for actually educating our clients and uh, addressing those who already are on top of this trend and do invest and do check their, you know, uh, you know, sustainability, so to speak, in, in terms of the portfolio. But also there is a lot of people who still want to take opportunity on the market regardless of what's happening next. And this is, I think, where we should play a role as well. You know, with the rapid development of China's economy, uh, I think ESG issues have become increasingly prominent. And the government and the pays more attention into this area. And uh, I think the big topic is green development. So ESG investment is really meaningful. And uh, the awareness of the institutions, uh, institutions, uh, individuals, investors about ESG is gradually increasing and they care more about sustainable investment. And so, and we uh, have included ESG consideration into 
asset allocation and wealth inheritance recommendations. Also, we add ESG investment into family fund, and we pay more attention to performance of investment strategies, targets, and uh, in terms of innovations, uh, instru- in, uh, industrial upgrading, and uh, societies. The taxonomy issue as well for China will be interesting to watch as the rules are increasingly set out as to what constitutes green finance. Okay, well, I'm afraid we've come to the end. It feels like we've only just started and there's a load of subjects we haven't been able to discuss. I apologise for that. That's uh, probably down to me waffling on as much as anything else. Thank you to everyone here. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you to Rob. Thank you to Yu Fang. And thank you very much to Augusto as well. And I hope you enjoyed the debate.